Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. Hi, my name is John Hilton. Welcome back to the course, Seeking Jesus. The purpose of this course is to help us learn all we can about Jesus Christ and draw closer to him. Let's begin today with a question. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord gives a list of spiritual gifts. Do you know which gift the Lord lists first? If you had asked me a couple years ago, I would have said charity or maybe the gift of teaching. But I recently learned that the very first gift that the Lord lists is to know through the Holy Ghost that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. Think about that. I believe this is a spiritual gift Jesus wants all of us to have, and it's one that we can receive and can continue to develop at increasingly deeper levels. Elder Dale G. Renlund once spoke about this spiritual gift and said, Qualifying for this gift is not gender-dependent, and it is not priesthood office-dependent. It is dependent upon qualifying for that gift by choosing faith, by choosing the covenant path. This is a spiritual gift that's available to all of us. Obviously, spiritual gifts come from God. They are given, not earned. At the same time, I think it's valuable for us to consider what efforts we have made or could make to receive this spiritual gift. Elder David A. Bednar taught, The Lord determines if and when we receive all spiritual gifts, yet we must do all in our power to desire and become eligible for such gifts. As we increasingly act in the doctrine of Christ and in a manner congruent with His teachings, Then we are indicating to heaven in a powerful manner our desire for and preparation to receive the spiritual gifts and attributes that enable us to represent him and to testify with conviction. If I were to brainstorm things we could do to receive the spiritual gift to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for our sins, I would include fasting, praying, and of course, taking Jesus up on an invitation he's repeatedly given. Learn of me. What has been your experience with learning about Jesus Christ? All of us have done this in some way. What approaches have helped you specifically learn about Jesus Christ and come to know him? As I've thought about this question, seven approaches come to mind. Living prophets, scriptures, modern scholarship, personal experiences, artwork, movies, and music. In a future video, we will talk about seeking Jesus through artwork, movies, and music. Today, we'll focus on learning of Jesus through living prophets, the scriptures, modern scholarship, and personal experiences. Let's first discuss seeking Jesus through modern prophets. One of the great blessings of living in the latter days is that prophets and apostles are on the earth. These individuals are special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. Their special witness of Christ can help us come closer to Him. Throughout this course, I will share some study tools and approaches I hope will be useful in your study of the Savior. One that helps us learn from prophets is called the Scripture Citation Index. You can use it as an app or use the website scriptures.byu.edu. This tool helps us identify every time that a scripture has been quoted in general conference. If you go to the website, you'd see that in the upper right-hand corner, it shows how many times the Old Testament, for example, has been quoted in general conference. That's 20,698 times. The New Testament has been referenced 43,405 times. It's interesting that the Book of Mormon has been quoted about the same as the Old Testament, half as often as the New Testament. 
Another cool feature that you can do with this website is see what verses of scripture an individual general authority has quoted. If you were to click on the button in the top right-hand corner of the website, you can filter by speaker and see specifically what they have quoted. So if we were to click on Elder Cook, for example, and then click filter, we could see which books he has most frequently quoted. If we wanted to, we could even drill down further and find out which specific passages a church leader has quoted most frequently. But the main purpose of this tool is to pick a verse and find every time it has been quoted so that you can gain prophetic insight on the scriptural teaching. Consider this scriptural passage from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. It says, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Pause for a moment and think about Christ's question. Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus invites each of us to take a stand. He asks, who do you say that I am? As we continue reading, it says, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's look up this passage on scriptures.byu.edu. It's been quoted many times. For example, chapter 16, verse 18 has been quoted 37 times. 18 and 19 together have been quoted 18 times, and verse 19 has been quoted 107 times. If we were to click on the verses 18 and 19, we could see how different church leaders have used these verses in their talks. This passage talks about Jesus Christ giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. What does that mean? In the April 2013 General Conference, President Dallin H. Oaks referred to these verses and explained, the Savior called 12 apostles to assist in his church and gave them the keys and authority to carry on after his death. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as the restored Church of Jesus Christ, follows this example in its organization and in its conferral of keys and authority on apostles. So President Oaks teaches that Jesus gave keys to his apostles, and those keys are used to direct the restored Church today. This passage has great relevance to us. Obviously, many more talks use these verses, and we could spend a lot of time exploring just this one passage. I hope this brief illustration shows one way that church leaders can help us learn more about Jesus Christ and his teachings. There are many other ways we can learn of Christ through prophets. For example, in the year 2000, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve released the statement, The Living Christ. Reading or even memorizing these words can let these apostolic testimonies sink deeper into our hearts. In 2013, Elder Robert D. Hales taught, the family, a proclamation to the world, was given long before we experienced the challenges now facing the family. The living Christ, the testimony of the apostles, was prepared in advance of when we will need it most. I'm not sure what the future will bring, but I know it will be increasingly important to be deeply rooted in Jesus Christ. Prophets can also give us invitations to learn more about the Savior. In 2017, President Russell M. Nelson invited young adults to read all the scriptural citations about Jesus Christ in the topical guide, totaling more than 2,000 verses. He later said, I gave that challenge because I had already accepted it myself. 
I read and underlined every verse cited about Jesus Christ as listed under the main heading and the 57 subtitles in the topical guide. When I finished that exciting exercise, my wife asked me what impact it had on me. I told her, I am a different man. I felt a renewed devotion to him. Think of it. President Nelson in his 90s and having been an apostle for decades was growing closer to Jesus Christ by studying the references to the Savior in the topical guide. I took President Nelson's invitation and honestly, it changed my life. If you're interested in suggestions for free apps and other tools you can use to accomplish President Nelson's invitation, or if you'd like to see more ideas for learning of Christ through modern prophets, visit the course website. For now, let's turn to a second powerful way to learn about Christ, the scriptures. The scriptures are explicitly created to point us to Jesus Christ. For example, in John 20, 31, we read, These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. In 2021, Elder David A. Bednar gave the following idea for growing closer to Christ through scripture study. He said, My invitation is to go into the Book of Mormon, read it from the beginning to the end, looking for the Savior, his attributes, his characteristics. And as you do that, earnestly and sincerely, it no longer becomes looking at words on a page. You come to hear his voice. You come to know him in a very remarkable way. One of the challenges with studying the scriptures, whether you read them in paper or digitally, is that they all kind of look the same. While that has some advantages, it can trip us up if we don't remember that these books of scripture are quite different from each other, coming from various centuries and continents. Consider this. The Old Testament was written roughly between 1300 and 400 BC. Then you have the New Testament that's written roughly between 50 and 180. There's a big gap between those two books. The Book of Mormon is written on a different continent and spans the time period of the Old and New Testament, and then we have modern revelations from the 1800s and forward. All these books of Scripture are trying to help us understand more about Jesus Christ. Because we'll be spending most of this course focused on the Bible, let's take a few minutes to get some background on how this book came to be. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, comprising several genres. There are writings of prophets, histories, poems, and songs. Many of the books in the Old Testament are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. Compare that with the Book of Mormon. For example, we know that Mormon wrote the Book of Alma by drawing on source material available to him. Mormon is very direct with readers that he's the compiler and about his purposes for writing the Book of Mormon. In contrast, books like 1st and 2nd Samuel or 1st and 2nd Kings are anonymous, and the author or authors are not explicit about their purposes in writing. By the way, I'm using the phrase Old Testament because many of us are familiar with it. But imagine if you're Jewish and I'm talking to you about the Old Testament. That might sound kind of offensive to you because it's your testament. A more inclusive way to refer to the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. And in this course, I'll use these terms interchangeably. It's interesting to note that while the books are the same, the order of the books is different in the standard Protestant Old Testament as compared to the Jewish Hebrew Bible. In the King James Table of Contents, there are 39 books in the Old Testament that comprise four sections, the Law, the History, Poetry, and the Prophets. In a Jewish version, the Hebrew Bible, these same 39 books are there, but they're subdivided differently. There's the Torah, or Law, comprising the first five books. That's the same in both. The next section in the Hebrew Bible is the Prophets, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophets. The third category is the Writings, which includes Psalms, Proverbs, and other books. By the time Jesus was born, these general divisions of the Law, the Prophets, and other books were already in place. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Brother Hilton, this is a course about Jesus. Why are we talking about the structure of the Hebrew Bible? Great question. It's because it can help us understand the Savior's words. 
Do you remember when he said the first two commandments were love God and love your neighbor? Jesus then said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That phrase, the law and the prophets, reference two major subsections of what will become the Hebrew Bible. All the law, all the prophets are summed up in these two great commandments. Here's another example. When the resurrected Christ appeared to the apostles in Luke 24, he said, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus is referring to these three sections of scripture, teaching that they all testify of him. It's important for us to remember that for Jesus and his first followers, what we might refer to as the Old Testament was their testament. It was all the scripture they had. The more we understand the Hebrew Bible, the better we will understand Christ's teachings. Here are just a few more details about the Hebrew Bible. The earliest known fragment of the Old Testament dates to 650 BC. It's amazing to have such ancient archeological evidence of scripture. You can find copies of sections, or in some cases, full books, like Isaiah, that have been found dating to 150 BC, well before the time of Christ. During Christ's mortal life, many of the books in the Law and the Prophets were clearly believed to be authoritative, what we would think of today as Scripture. By 100 AD, we see the first known authoritative list of books in the Hebrew Bible that match up with the same books we have today, and the earliest known complete copy of an Old Testament dates to 350 AD. So that's a little bit of background on the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? You're probably most familiar with the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you've got Acts, which was written by the same author who wrote Luke. Other than the gospels and Acts, most of the other books in the New Testament are letters written by Paul or other individuals to teach various Christian communities about Jesus Christ. You might wonder, how are the 27 different books that we have as the New Testament selected for inclusion and brought together in a single work. That question concerns canon. When we talk about scripture, canon refers to authoritative works that are used to measure truth. In terms of timing, by the late 300s, the New Testament canon was solidified in the form we know it today. Prior to this time, there were different canons proposed by different regions. For example, some congregations might have said something like, we're not really sure if 2 Peter is scripture, maybe we shouldn't include it in our sacred writings. Or others said, Revelation seems a little strange, let's leave it out. Although various groups debated about some of the books, it has been widely recognized that by the end of the second century, a core canon of 20 or more books was generally acknowledged throughout the churches. Books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with a few other books that were decisively determined to be part of the canon over the next couple hundred years. So what criteria were used to determine whether books were included in the canon or excluded? Scholars suggest at least three. First is apostolicity, which means it was either written by or attributed to an apostle. Second, popularity, meaning it was commonly known by church members. Third is orthodoxy, meaning it taught what Christians believed. So if you were trying to determine whether a specific book should be included in the New Testament, you might ask questions like, was it written by or associated with an apostle? Is this book commonly known in various congregations? Does this church teach what Christians believe? Now, imagine that you wanted to see the original manuscripts of the New Testament. We know that the angel Moroni took back the gold plates, but where are the original manuscripts of the books of the Bible? Would you guess they're at the Louvre in Paris, the British Museum in London, the Vatican Library in Rome, or the First Presidency's Vault in Salt Lake City? Actually, the original manuscripts don't exist. The earliest known complete copy of the New Testament dates to about 350 AD, 
and the earliest known fragments of New Testament writings date to about 150 AD. That means that about 80 years elapsed from the time that the books of the New Testament were written to the earliest remains we have of them. And then there's a larger time gap until we have a complete version. Let's be clear. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it has been translated correctly. In some instances, the Bible wasn't translated or transmitted correctly. And that makes sense. Before the printing press, to get a copy of the New Testament, someone had to handwrite it. Have you ever handwritten the entire Bible? I guarantee your hand would hurt and you would also make some mistakes along the way if you copied the Bible by hand. Especially if we remember that the early manuscripts of the Bible were written in continuous script, which means there were no spaces between words. That would make transcribing even harder. Because of the difficulties that have occurred with transcribing and translating the scriptures over time, scholars have a tool called textual criticism. Textual criticism is not criticizing a text. Rather, it involves trying to, as much as possible, get to the original version of a text. For example, we can't study the original manuscript of the Gospel of John because it doesn't exist. But we can go back to manuscript fragments, to the earliest copies that we have available of different chapters, and perhaps get a little closer to the original text. In future videos, we'll see examples of how textual criticism can help us understand Jesus' teaching. Another reason I mention textual criticism concerns the King James Version of the Bible. It's the official English-language version of the Bible for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was published in 1611, more than 400 years ago. In the intervening centuries, people have discovered many ancient Bible manuscripts that give additional insight in Bible translation. That's not to put down the King James Bible. I love it, and church members are encouraged to use it. At the same time, we are not forbidden from consulting other versions. In 2021, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, I'm reading concurrently the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. I'm also doing the Oxford Study Bible, which is the Revised English Version, a delightful work which I am loving. You might find it helpful at times to consult an alternate version of the Bible, like Elder Holland and other leaders do. The Church Handbook states, When possible, members should use a preferred or church-published edition of the Bible in church classes and meetings. This helps maintain clarity in the discussion and consistent understanding of doctrine. Other editions of the Bible may be useful for personal or academic study. And I want to emphasize that last phrase, other editions of the Bible may be useful for personal or academic study. Many Bible translations are available for free online. In this course, I'll sometimes use the New Revised Standard Version. I do this because it has gender-inclusive language, makes the transition between modern language and scripture go more smoothly, and can provide a fresh perspective on familiar texts. One other quick thought about the Bible. As modern readers, we often take chapters and verses for granted. However, they were not part of the original text. The chapter and versification that appears in modern Bibles didn't exist until the 1500s. This is helpful to know because sometimes we will read a passage differently if we recognize that the last verse of one chapter and the first verse of the following chapter were originally continuous text. Thus far, we've been focused on the Bible. We also have Restoration Scripture. That's the collective term for books of Scripture that have come forth through the Restoration, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. The Bible and Restoration Scripture go hand in hand. In fact, the Prophet Mormon specifically wrote that the Book of Mormon is written for the intent that ye may believe the Bible. And if ye believe the Bible, ye will believe the Book of Mormon. The Bible and the Book of Mormon are not in competition with each other. A key purpose of the Book of Mormon is to persuade us to believe in the Bible. One thing that's helped me become a better student of the scriptures is to carefully note how different books of scripture illuminate various aspects of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story about Moses raising up a serpent on a staff? 
Do you think that this story connects to Jesus Christ? Let's explore this scriptural account from different angles in the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Book of Mormon. In the Old Testament account, we learn that the people were complaining against Moses because they didn't have enough food in the wilderness. We read, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. This is a great scripture story. But note that the Old Testament itself doesn't connect this event to Jesus Christ. We do that because of the New Testament. In John 3, 14-16 we read, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Can you see how Jesus connects himself with the serpent on the staff? That's something new, something not done in the Old Testament. Similarly, Alma teaches, The Son of God was spoken of by Moses. Yea, and behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, that whosoever would look upon it might live. And many did look and live. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe it would heal them. So cast about your eyes and believe in the Son of God. Can you feel the power in Alma's words? He says in effect, eyes on Jesus, see him and find healing. The connection between the brazen serpent and Jesus Christ appears in the New Testament and the Book of Mormon, but not the Old Testament. You might be wondering, why does it matter if I learn about it from the Old Testament or the New Testament or the Book of Mormon? One reason is so that when we talk to people of other faiths, we're clear about where we've learned certain principles. For example, if I'm talking to a Jewish person about this scriptural account, it wouldn't be fair for me to expect her to see Christ in the story because her scriptures don't say that. In addition, knowing what an individual book says and doesn't say about a specific event helps us read scripture in context and increases our scriptural literacy. Let's look at one more example. Who gave the law to Moses? In Exodus 24:12, we read, And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written. Notice how it says here, the Lord in all capital letters. In the King James Version of the Old Testament, when the word LORD spelled in all capital letters appears, it means it's coming from the Hebrew word YHWH, which would be transliterated as Yahweh or Jehovah. So is this verse talking about Jesus Christ or Heavenly Father? If we only had the Old Testament, we couldn't answer that question. But in the Book of Mormon, Jesus says, The law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Behold, I am he that gave the law. The Book of Mormon is clear that Jesus is Jehovah. Modern prophets have also taught this. The living Christ says he was the great Jehovah of the Old Testament. Because we know from Restoration Scripture and modern prophets that Jesus is Jehovah, that tells us that all these times we see the Lord acting in the Old Testament, it is Jesus Christ. Understanding that Jesus is Jehovah helps us see how central Jesus is in the Old Testament. Not counting words like the or and, the word Lord is the most frequently used word in the Old Testament. It appears more than 6,800 times. This helps us see the Old Testament as a powerful way to learn more about the Savior. 
In our next episode, we'll talk about the Abrahamic covenant. It's Jesus who gives the Abrahamic covenant. Later in the course, we'll talk about the law of Moses. It's the Savior giving the law. We'll see revelations that Christ gives to Enoch, Isaiah, Hosea, and others. Jesus is at the heart of the Old Testament. Studying the scriptures is a very important way we can learn about Jesus Christ. Let's talk about a third approach, learning from modern scholarship. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 118 says, Seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning even by study and also by faith. Sometimes I've been in a class and the teacher asks, what are the best books? And someone raises their hand and says, the scriptures. And the teacher says, that's right. And then we just move on. The scriptures are awesome. We've just spent a good portion of this episode talking about them. There are also other powerful books that might fall into the category of the best books that we can study and learn from. Recently, I've been reflecting on the Savior's teaching about the two great commandments. We often summarize them as love God and love your neighbor, but there's a bit more to the first commandment. It's not just to love God, it's to love God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. What does it mean to love God and Jesus Christ with all our minds? Are we putting our mental faculties into studying, really learning of Jesus? Some of us are putting tons of energy into studying calculus, computers, science, history, or some other amazing topic. Are we putting that same type of intellectual effort into studying Jesus Christ? That's part of his invitation to learn of him. I'll be honest, sometimes I've been a little nervous to study scholarship about Jesus because I thought, well, what if I read isn't true? Scholars make mistakes, and that's a valid concern. Two different scholars might look at the exact same data and disagree about what it means. Scholars can get things wrong and, like all of us, have biases. That's a legitimate danger with scholarship, but it doesn't mean we should ignore it. In fact, Elder M. Russell Ballard said, I am a general authority, but that does not make me an authority in general. My calling and life experiences allow me to respond to certain types of questions. There are other types of questions that require an expert in a specific subject matter. This is exactly what I do when I need an answer to such questions. I seek help from others, including those with degrees and expertise in such fields. Elder Ballard is saying that if he has a question about some ancient Near Eastern topic, even though he's a general authority, he's going to talk to experts about his question. You and I can access all kinds of great experts through modern scholarship. Dr. Joshua Sears, a professor at Brigham Young University, said, We of course need to keep in mind that scholarship, like all human endeavors, is imperfect. Sometimes scholars may disagree because there is more than one legitimate way to interpret the data. All scholarly conclusions, no matter how well researched, are subject to reevaluation in light of new information, either through prophetic revelation or by updated scholarship. Let me give an example you might be familiar with. In his book, Jesus the Christ, Elder James E. Talmadge used both inspiration and scholarship. If you go back and look at the book, you'll find that he frequently quotes scholars and shares their viewpoints. It's obvious that Elder Talmadge appreciated and used the insights of scholars. Jesus the Christ was published in 1915, more than 100 years ago, so some of the scholarship that Elder Talmadge quotes is now out of date as new discoveries have been made. That's not to put down Jesus the Christ. In fact, I think that if Elder Talmadge were alive today, he'd be very engaged in current scholarship and would want to know how the latest findings can help us draw closer to the Savior. Perhaps in addition to reading classic powerful works like Jesus the Christ, we can also study new insights that are being discovered. There are many such available resources for study. For example, the websites hosted by Book of Mormon Central, BYU Studies, BYU's Religious Study Center, and the Neil A. Maxwell Institute are filled with valuable resources for learning scholarly insights about the Savior. In addition, there are some amazing podcasts that can enhance our understanding of Jesus Christ.
LDS Perspectives, BYU's Why Religion, Follow Him, and many other intellectually invigorating podcasts can help us learn of Him. We should be smart consumers of information, and certainly everything you hear on a podcast isn't the gospel truth. But that doesn't mean we should block out valuable sources of information. Let's invite some of this scholarship into our lives to learn more about Jesus. One of my favorite ways to learn from scholars is to read books. On the course website, you can find several recommendations of books about Jesus to read and explore. One that I recently read is called The Archaeology of Daily Life, Ordinary Persons in Late Second Temple Israel. I know some of you are thinking, Brother Hilton, you need to get some better hobbies because that does not sound like a fun book. Reading this book was actually really fun because it showed what archaeology can teach us about how ordinary people lived during the time of Christ. Let me share an example of what I learned from this book. The author describes how people wore tunics as their main article of clothing. Most people wore a short tunic, and their only other article of clothing was called a cloak or a mantle, sort of like a large shawl that could double as a blanket. Clothing was valuable. Bandits often robbed their victims of clothing, and many people were so poor, they didn't even have these two articles of clothing. They just had their tunic, and they would share their cloak with a spouse or a friend. Imagine being a college student. You and your roommate each have your own tunic. That's your only article of clothing. And then one of you gets to wear the cloak Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the other gets it Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Unless you have a hot date and need to trade nights. Keep this context in mind and think about how it changes the way we view some of Jesus' teachings. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your body, what you will wear. In the 21st century, I hear this as I'm standing in front of my closet full of clothes and shoes and hear a message, don't worry about your outfit today. That is not the situation in Jesus' day. He's talking to people who have one pair of clothes, and if your tunic is getting some tears, you might be kind of stressed out because you can't afford a new tunic. Why do you worry about clothing, Jesus says? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. If God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? Many of us aren't too worried about clothing, and if we are, we're probably not worried in the same way as these first century listeners. Jesus was talking about a very real daily concern and saying, don't worry about this. God's got you. Think about something in your life that you're deeply worried about, where you feel like you're on the edge and you, you might fall off. Jesus says, don't worry. Seriously, don't worry. Trust in God. He takes care of the grass. He will take care of you. On another occasion, Jesus taught, if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, that would be the tunic, give your cloak as well. Remember, you only have two articles of clothing. So if you're sued for your tunic and voluntarily give up your cloak, you're naked and have nothing. This helps us see in a much more radical way what Jesus is teaching when he tells us to turn the other cheek. When I read this verse, I think, sure, you can have my shirt and here's my sweatshirt too. I don't care. I've got lots of clothes in my closet. That's not the situation of his early listeners. Maybe for us, it's more like if anyone will sue you and take your car, give your house also. Hopefully the next time we're in a turn the other cheek kind of situation, we'll be able to remember what Jesus was teaching and find strength to follow his counsel. This is just one small insight as to how learning a little bit about clothing from modern scholarship helped me see these verses in a different way. I hope this piques your interest and makes you want to learn a little bit more about daily life during the time of Jesus and other things scholarship can teach us. Let's take our final few minutes and talk about personal experiences. This is one of the most powerful ways we can come to know the Savior. Jesus prayed to his Father saying, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is to know God and Jesus. In English, the word know has different connotations. There's knowing facts, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's also knowing in the sense of knowing a person. 
In Greek, there are different words for knowing facts and knowing by experience. In this passage, the Greek word translated as know means to know by experience. Some of you may speak Spanish and be familiar with the difference between conocer and saber. In the Spanish translation of John 17.3, it says, Y esta es la vida eterna, que te conozcan. Eternal life is to know God and Jesus through experience. It's not knowing about them, but knowing them. How can we know Christ through personal experience? Consider these passages of Scripture. Everyone that loveth knoweth God. Hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. Is that not what it means to know me? How knoweth a man the master whom he has not served? So if we want to know Jesus, we love him. We keep his commandments. We defend the poor. We serve others. As we do these things, we will have experiences with the Savior and come to deeply know him. Sometimes it can be really small experiences that help us connect with Christ. Here's an example from my life. I was putting all my kids to bed one night. I don't know if you've ever tried to put several kids to bed at once. It's like that game whack-a-mole. You know, as soon as you get one person in bed, another jumps out. Well, after a lot of effort, all the kids were in bed but one. And I was looking forward to some downtime so I could check social media and read the latest news. But that last child did not want to go to bed. Instead, she wanted to tell me a story she was writing in school. She described the story in great detail and length. It was a good story, but it was a long story. After about five minutes, I was really tempted to pull out my phone and start multitasking. Would it really matter if I scrolled through the news while listening to my child? But I remembered that Nephi had taught about the Savior. Doth Jesus cry unto any, saying, Depart from me? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, but he saith, Come unto me. I realized that looking at my phone while my daughter was talking to me might communicate to her a message like, Depart from me. So I patiently listened and listened and listened some more. At the end of her description, she asked, Well, Dad, do you like my story? I love it, honey. You have great ideas, I said truthfully. She smiled and said, Dad, you're the first person who has ever listened to my whole story. It isn't easy to be a good parent, and to be honest, I'm nowhere near perfect in this department. But in that moment, I felt like I was learning about Jesus Christ through personal experience as I tried to be like Him. We began today by talking about spiritual gifts, and I want to conclude on the same note. While serving as a full-time missionary, I was at a mission conference presided over by Elder Richard G. Scott. During a moment between meetings, I asked Elder Scott, can you still receive a spiritual gift if it isn't listed in your patriarchal blessing? He looked at me and said, if you pray for the gift and then act as though you already have it, the gift will be yours. Think about that in terms of the first spiritual gift to know through the Holy Ghost that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. What would you do differently if you already had this spiritual gift? As we start to live like we have this gift, it can be ours. Elder Ballard taught, Every member of the church is entitled to and can develop an apostolic-like relationship with the Lord. Part of developing this relationship is putting forth effort to learn of Jesus Christ. The Savior has promised, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and you shall find me. As we focus our efforts on seeking Christ diligently, we will feel closer to Him and find great joy. The purpose of our time together today has been to explore ways we can learn of Christ through prophets, scriptures, scholarship, and personal experiences. In the course website, you'll find several concrete suggestions of how you can better come to know Christ through these and other approaches. I invite you to look at the post-class optional readings and pick one thing you can do to focus more on Jesus Christ and learn of Him. In our next class, we'll focus on Jesus in the book of Genesis, particularly His role in the creation of the world and the Abrahamic covenant. I hope you'll join us. 
Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.